0: KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
1: From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. When John Batiste set out to make what he now calls a boring process documentary about composing a symphony, he and director Matthew Heinemann couldn't have predicted what would follow.
2: He said, you know what? I'd love to work on that with you. And within a month of us deciding to work on the film together, he starts filming. We don't have any backers. I get nominated for 11 Grammys the same week that I find out my wife's leukemia returns.
1: Batiste explains why he stuck with making American Symphony even after his wife, Suleika Jawad, was diagnosed and hospitalized. The couple allowed Heinemann to keep the cameras rolling pretty much around the clock. The film wound up premiering at Telluride and winning the backing of Netflix and The Obamas. But first we banter, stick around, it's The Business from KCRW. I am joined by my partner in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So we both reported on different aspects of this Tom Cruise deal that was announced by Warner Brothers Discovery. Tom Cruise has made an arrangement with them. I mean, he's had a long time home at Paramount, and he has never had a formal deal there, but he's made most of his movies lately there, and it was a relationship that Paramount clearly would have wanted to protect, although I think it got a little strained when Mission Impossible 7 didn't perform that well, and they're going to end up losing maybe $30 million or more on that film. But still, they had Top Gun, huge grocer, Obviously, they want to make a sequel to that, but it appears that the bloom went off the Paramount Tom Cruise rose, and Tom Cruise ends up going over to Warner's and making this deal, and David Zaslav, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, you know, he has talked about restoring the luster of Warner's, and, you know, at the same time, he's done things that very much upset the film community, starting with the dumping of Batgirl. But, you know, the question now is, what does it mean, if anything?
3: Yeah, and what is Warner Brothers actually getting out of this? It's called a strategic partnership, but this is not a first-look deal. It is not an exclusive arrangement. Tom Cruise can make whatever movie he wants for whatever studio he wants, and we're not sure what the money is either. We know he gets an office on the lot, which, you know, great.
1: He didn't have it at Paramount. He He probably didn't want it because if he had, he would have had it.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's a lot of projects that are potentially on Tom Cruise's potential wish list. He's got this project at Universal that he has been developing for years, the Doug Lyman movie, where he's going to potentially go to space.
1: I, I just will say, I don't think that the prospect of ensuring Tom Cruise in space will be that appealing to anybody. Well, so I kind of discount that one.
3: And NASA is now involved. So, you know, we don't know what the timeline is on that. He's got Top Gun 3, which as you mentioned, I reported there is now a writer- On that project. Which could, however,
1: take like, well, I would say by the time Top Gun 3 becomes a thing, should it become a thing, Paramount will no longer be the entity we now call (laughs) Paramount.
3: (laughs) Maybe not. Uh, The first one did take, what, 35 years to have a sequel? But Tom Cruise doesn't have 35 years to wait around to do another Top Gun. He's got to do it sooner than that. Um, And then there are all these projects that are unnamed and potentially out there that Warner says they might do with him. You know, you reported that it might be an action franchise starter. It could be a thriller. They supposedly gave him a green light as part of this. You will have a green light on some movie that they
1: will develop. Which again, may mean less than, you know, (laughs) than it appears to mean, but go on.
3: So the other thing is there's all these Warner Brothers movies that Tom Cruise made from the 80s and 90s. Everything from Risky Business to more recently Edge of Tomorrow, which, you know, there's been some talk about a prequel to that movie. You know, Tom Cruise is this interesting entity because he's arguably the biggest movie star in the world, yet he hasn't done a movie outside of his core franchises, Mission Impossible and now Top Gun, since 2017. And that movie, which was American Made, did not perform well. The movie before that, The Mummy reboot, did not perform up to expectations. And the movie before that, which was a Jack Reacher sequel, did not perform up to expectations. So yes, Tom Cruise is the biggest movie star in the world, but like Is he? That's the question.
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought he would be a star longer in Mission Impossible. But, you know, for whatever reason, quality of the movie, nature of the times – that movie just underperformed. And they've Paramount sitting there with another sequel, Mission Impossible 8, costing a fortune. And they're not even going to release it until 2025. Tom will be wrapped up in that until 2025. I think Warners is really hoping for the Edge of Tomorrow thing that had been in development even before the current regime got there. And they want that to be his next movie. He's not going back to the more adult drama type of thing, I'm told. He wants another franchise. So I don't know If he can pull that off at this point, but that is going to be the wheelhouse in which they are looking.
3: Which makes sense. You know, if you have Tom Cruise, you want to develop something that could be all audiences, four quadrants, something big. Is that the best path for his career, or is something like what Robert Downey Jr. has done now after the Avengers movies are over? He's now in Oppenheimer, which has kind of revitalized his career as an actor-actor, and he might get an Oscar for it. Is that in Tom Cruise's wheelhouse anymore? Can he do those roles even? He still doesn't have an Oscar.
1: He can act. I mean, we've seen him do acting, but Oh, he's not- a great
3: actor. I mean, I, I'd love to see him be an actor and not be Tom Cruise in movies. But he also really likes that huge box office. He loves the theatrical experience. He loves getting the worldwide attention. You know, it's a, it's a weird delay. With him.
1: I think he's the most committed movie star in the business. And I will say that I don't think he would rush to do Top Gun since I think he's become quite annoyed with Paramount management, pushing him to put things on the streamer and things that don't happen when you're Tom Cruise. And so he's felt... Let down by them. He lawyered up when they wanted to put a film in theaters for only 45 days. That's over. So we'll see. And I will just note that one of my sources on my story said they wish Warner Brothers good luck with dealing with Tom Cruise because he's a veteran at this. He knows how to charm executives and he always seems to get his way. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. At just 37 years old, John Batiste has already had a dazzling career in music. Many know him as the Emmy-nominated band leader on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and he shares an Oscar with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for composing the soundtrack for the 2020 Pixar film Soul. And he's also picked up five Grammys. In 2021, Batiste scored Matthew Heinemann's COVID documentary, First Wave, which led to the idea of filming a straightforward look at the musician's process of composing and then conducting a modern symphony at Carnegie Hall, which he did in 2022. By then, Batiste's life and the concept of the film had changed drastically. In 2021, Batiste's wife, Suleika Jawad, had a recurrence of leukemia after first being diagnosed in 2011. American Symphony became a look at Batiste the musician alongside a very intimate portrait of the couple coping with a life-threatening illness. The film follows John and Suleika at home and into the hospital as Jawad copes with punishing cancer treatment. In one scene, John and Suleika are seen sharing a rare light moment in the hospital corridors, while Batiste narrates.
2: I feel a strong, strong desire to take the pain away, but I can't. This is a moment, a test, and it's nobody's fault,
1: and nobody can control it. Our conversation with Batiste is the first of a two-part installment of the business, this week, we talk with him about being the subject of American Symphony and deciding to proceed despite his wife's illness. Next week, we'll bring you a conversation with Matthew Heineman on how the film was made. You worked with Matthew first on First Wave, right?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! <laughs> yes, indeed. I, 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 you know, I met Matt. It was a beautiful thing that he was doing in a hard, harrowing endeavor as well to document the first wave of COVID in New York. And I got a call because um, I was doing an event, I was doing a performance and Matthew saw me perform and he gave me a cold call and said, would you help me write the music to this film that I'm working on? And I did that. And then after that film was done, we having dinner one night and I told him what my next year was looking like. And I had this ambition to document this never been done symphony concept. <laughs> I was wanting to reinvent the symphony and reinvent what the symphonic form, not really changing it, but expanding it and and, and expounding upon it. The, the symphonic form. And I wanted to make a boring process, Doc, that people who are interested in that kind of thing would watch. And he said, you know what? <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love to work on that with you. And within a month of us deciding to work on the film together, that has become American Symphony. He then, you know, starts filming. We don't have any backers. I get nominated for 11 Grammys the same week that I find out my wife's leukemia returns and the film shifts gears in a way that we couldn't have predicted. And we have to decide what are we going to do? And we kept filming.
1: Let me pause a second and say when you worked on the first wave, the COVID doc, what was it that made you say yes?
2: To be honest, it was the fact that he got access to the hospital and we didn't know what this thing was. We didn't know what COVID was. We didn't really understand it. We knew what it was, but didn't understand its impact or what it was gonna do to the world. And then everything was being shut down. I was in lockdown when I was working on this music. We weren't in the same place. We were doing so much remotely, but even before that process, I just felt like it was something that if this can be done right, it's a historical document. It's an important thing. And it's something that we're all facing. I would love to help him to bring that to life. I, I will say I didn't know his other work, but then I looked up his other work and realized he typically is embedded in war zones or drug cartels. <laughs> right. He, he's typically risking his life to make a film. So then I saw that And between seeing, oh, wow, this guy is really serious and thinking about COVID and what that was at the time. I said, yes.
1: And so then going forward, you have that crazy week you just talked about with you know the nominations and Sulika, your wife getting bad news about her disease. And it sounds like you went into it sort of with your eyes open, although you obviously could hardly predict where this was going to go.
2: No clue. I mean, not that we can predict anything that's around the corner in life. We don't know what life has in store for us. But this was particularly a time of extremes that taught us the lesson that life is the extremes all at once. And everyone's dealing with the highs and lows, and it's not separate. And you can't look at that as a duality. It's it's all integrated. And our way to move forward is to figure out a way to continue to integrate all of the things of our life, family, work, our values aligning with what we're actually doing and how we're living, all of the great things that we have in terms of our artistic ambition, and how do we make space for all of that and to really be in the present and to stay focused on the things that are most important.
1: Yes. So my impression is to was not like by any means an immediate yes, because, you know, it's an unknown path going forward. But one thing you do know is it's not going to be any fun at all.
2: I didn't want her to be involved. She was reluctant and ultimately not wanting to be involved for the reasons that you stated. And also, she's a stellar storyteller and has been telling her story through her writing, through her arts and activism practices that she's continued, even when she was sick, going into painting, by the way, as you see in a film. yes. But, you know, she could have told the story herself. So to trust someone that she doesn't know, for me being the protective partner to think that, you know, she may not make it. We don't know if she's going to make it through this. Also, all the things that I was carrying in light of this news, not knowing how I was going to make it. And, and um, if I was going to crack, you know, I see, see my in the film, I'm questioning that even in, in a phone conversation with one of my close friends.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I'm not sure we would have kept the cameras rolling had it not been for the frank and candid conversations we had with Matt every single week up until probably the last frame was edited. (laughs) It was a, it was a process of constant reassessing of the decision to film constant boundary setting and ultimately just trusting and the boundaries becoming less and less and it becoming more just like a camera is with us and we don't notice it.
1: Yeah, it certainly is a really intimate film. But were you in a position, you and a either one or both, to say, you know what, we don't want this in the film, so do something else at any point?
2: What we did was something that is also a bit of a tightrope walk, which is to make a film with no process of distribution in place. Right. (laughs) And no partners. So, you know, this is... The sequence of events, you know, the dinner that Mm -hmm. we decided to film, then getting the news about all of this upcoming life upheaval and then filming and continuing to film, not really knowing what the story would be, there were 1,500 hours of footage by the end,
1: Uh, which... That's a lot.
2: (laughs) Yes. He he embedded with us in, in the same way he embedded with the crazy situations of his previous films and the kind of intensity that you would take into a war zone. He took that intensity with documenting our lives at this time. So imagine... It not feeling like a film, but also feeling like it was invasive and we really needed to find a way to trust each other or stop. And he gained our trust. We started to really become more and more connected through the process of living through the moments, processing them together and really coming to an understanding of what our values were, even though we weren't in the edit room sharing them with Matt, Sulayka not wanting to be flattened in the narrative, being the sick wife, quote unquote, Mm. and the the narrative counterpoint and the tension to my success career rise, me not wanting this unprecedented work that's become the score of the film and also the symphony itself to be flattened and to not be seen for what it is and the cultural achievement that it is, standing on the shoulders of legends and this one-of-a-kind moment. And all that was something that we'd shared with Matt continuously through the process. But he had the final say, it's his film, but we definitely were very, very clear with our feedback in terms of what we valued. And we trusted that he would respect all the things that we said, but ultimately make something of integrity.
1: Mm -hmm. And did that happen from your standpoint? I I don't watch the film because I can't watch it. I understand. It's really part. I mean, there is the euphoric highs, but the really low lows. Is she watching the movie? Is she more comfortable watching it than you are, or you both aren't watching it?
2: Well, she's really more comfortable because she doesn't remember so much of what was going on and didn't have access to so much of what was happening during that time. Because, you know, when she was going through treatment, it was one of those things where she didn't really having awareness of those moments, those quiet moments when I was not in the hospital or to see me going through all of the things that were happening when she was in the hospital and now having an insight into that, she really enjoyed watching the film and processing all of that.
1: Hmm, Different reactions. Okay. I get that.
2: It's hard for me. I could probably watch the film in five years from now. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I did, as a means of writing the song, It Never Went Away, that is featured in the, the end of the film as the closing credits, it was this moment where he sent me a clip of the final scene. And I had seen a few different versions of the end prior to that that were completely different. There was one version of the end of the film where I was playing the encore at Carnegie Hall, which is the Star Spangled Banner, but it was a, a version of it that I had arranged and mm. I really love that just because American Symphony, the piece is an appraisal and assessment of American, also a reimagining of what it could be if we lived up to our values. And the music was an allegory for that. So I thought that that ending was amazing. And he showed me the new ending and I didn't like it. I was like, I don't like this. And as we were, we are very honest, we were clear with him what we thought whenever he asked for our feedback. But, you know, he said, Well, think about it the premiere is tomorrow at Telluride. Oh, no. <laughs> and, you know, I told him after thinking about it, looking at the cut, I said, it needs some sort of score, something musically. Cause prior to that, I would never thought about writing a song for the film, but it, it really, it spoke to both of us in a way that it demanded some song to reach a full culmination. It, it, it needed that element.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
2: uh, I think everything about this film was done with integrity and done with brutal honesty. And I'm grateful that we were able to bear with it and believe in sharing our experience living through the human condition.
1: Coming up after the break, John Batiste shares why a private lullaby he wrote for his wife became a part of American Symphony. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. KCRW.
0: KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Scene on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Scene on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled.
1: Director Matthew Heineman captured roughly 1,500 hours of footage over the course of eight months filming American Symphony, which is now a major Oscar contender. The film explores Grammy-winning musician John Batiste's jam-packed professional life alongside an intimate look into a very private world, as Batiste's wife, Zuleika Jawad, copes with harrowing months of cancer treatment. American Symphony remained a work in progress, even after its premiere at Telluride, with director Matthew Heineman adding an original song to the ending at Batiste's request. So did you actually change it right before Telluride or did he?
2: That's what ended up being what you see. He, he changed it. He decided um, that it was right to have a song, which I think makes it incredible. I thought it was it was amazing once we added the song and the song also was something that was a very, very interesting process to blend the song into the world of the themes within the symphony, which became themes tied to different narrative threads. So there's so many narrative threads braided together to create the film. There's so many threads that became one. And the symphony, you know, I Pluribus Una, that's what I was thinking about with the symphony. So when writing the score, we thought, oh, we could figure out a way to connect the themes of the symphony with themes within the narrative. And it all culminated into this song, which made perfect sense, but we couldn't see it until the very end of the process.
1: Were you creating the song before Telluride? I'm a little unclear on that.
2: So I was writing lullabies for Sulika when she was in the hospital. And Ah. one of the themes from the song, you know, this is what I mean, the the sort of... um, honesty of the process. I couldn't write a song after the fact that felt like it was in integrity with everything that we'd lived through. And I went back to those lullaby themes that I wrote for Sulika when she was in the hospital, which were never intended to be released to the public. They were just for her peace and healing in that room. And I started to compose the song based on one of those themes. And what ended up happening is after Riot, we placed the song into the film and it felt so inevitable. It came right out of the symphony. And I composed a piece that would connect the symphony to the song, blending song composition and musical composition from those different traditions is something that's sometimes difficult to do. But once we found that it was amazing and we placed it in the film after Telluride.
1: It's uh, funny how sometimes the last minute idea is what makes the thing perfect. Right. I don't know if you had met president Obama before the Obamas got involved with your film. You probably did somewhere, but how thrilling was it? And give me an idea if you actually had met him or if I'm completely wrong.
2: Well, you know, I had never met him. I had met the first lady, Michelle Obama, and she was so kind in our previous meetings that I was thrilled to hear that they had seen the film and were moved by it. I've been in rooms with President Obama prior to this, and we have had communication. (laughs) My album, We Are, when it was released, he sent me the nicest note in regards to his view of the achievement of that album and how, you know, he had really enjoyed listening to it. And I also had been with him in different parts of the opening ceremonies for the Smithsonian museum of African-American history. Mm. Um, so there's, there's been moments like that, but we'd never really sat down and we didn't ever break bread. And, um, one day Matt, he called and he said, um, check your messages. You got a message from the president. It's like, okay.
1: <laughs> and you're like, which one? <laughs>
2: like which one? I like, oh my goodness. I mean, this, it was really thrilling because it was just one of those moments that again, we didn't think about when making this film. I I, I initially wanted to make a process documentary about a symphony and it turned into this life documentary that was that plus so much more. and. Then we finished it and we had no idea if we were even going to be able to find a partner to share it with the world. And all of a sudden, after this premiere at Telluride, there's so many people vying for the film. And then the president raises his hand. (laughs) (laughs) So you got to imagine the acceleration of everything after a a very, very unpredictable and at times tenuous seven or eight month process. 1,500 hours of footage, so much thought going into how to create a film. There could have been a thousand different films created, thinking about how to make the score and the song and all of it really be so special and inevitable and true. And then we get to this point, now there's all this interest and now we're trying to show it to the world. And that's how it happened.
1: Amazing. This thing really had the wind at its back, even though you couldn't have known let me step back one more minute, just going backwards on this process with Suleika. I know at one point she does ask for the cameras off. I mean, was there ever a point where you thought we just cannot deal with this at this time?
2: Oftentimes, what would happen is I would have to stand up and really say to the team, "I really don't feel comfortable here." And there was also a commitment that Suleika and I made when deciding to continue with filming, which was that we wouldn't want to watch something that was fake or or of the trend of music or celebrity docs that are very prevalent you know not to throw any shade at anything but just there's a lot of real promotional documentation or it feels almost like um a bit of a narrative that is constructed rather than shared um mm-hmm. And we didn't really want to present anything like that. We don't like to watch things like that. So we wanted it to be real, but we also would reach points where it felt like it, it it was too invasive. And that was the dance the entire eight, nine months. It was to, you know, they would push, we would pull, we would want to share something. And then it would get to a point where they would be like, well, can we sit in on your therapy session? And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. And then, Eventually, it got to a point where there was more trust built. And then I was like, OK, well, I'm doing a therapy session. Now you can sit in this one. So it was like a push and a pull where they would need to gain our trust. But we wanted to share. But sometimes we didn't have that trust yet. So then we'd have to build that. It honestly, was like developing any relationship with a close friend or a family member, you know.
1: Yes. I mean, except the family member can broadcast you to the world as opposed to just having a little argument in the dining room or whatever.
2: <laughs> That's the blessing of not having had Netflix on board yet. If we would have known that we were like, but <laughs> we were filming was going to end up on Netflix and we were going to partner with President Obama and First Lady Michelle, if we would have known that, right? <laughs> right. It, it wouldn't have been the same. Like we we were filming with our friend Matt, who's like very pushy in some senses, but he has a heart of gold. He's a great guy. And we could talk to him like we talk to any friend and be real. So it was a dance between the three of us and obviously with Suleika and her situation, what was going on. I um was so protective of that and so protective of our family. But when she, as someone who has told her story for a decade of how she has dealt with this illness in the New York Times, in her memoir, through her isolation journals, it became something that she took ownership of. And we really grew to... What is this greater why? What is the reason? And the greater why was, oh, everybody's going through something like this. Maybe this could actually be a depiction of what we all deal with in this thing called life.
1: Yeah, the ups and the downs sometimes at the same time. So now you are on the award circuit. (laughs) How are you finding that experience?
2: (laughs) Doing it with Sulika and us being together, that's amazing. Anything we can do together, whether it's on vacation or it's traveling to a Q&A for <laughs> a premiere, <laughs> it's just it's fun. And it's more than work with this one it feels important for us to be some way involved with sharing it because it started with that sort of commitment to sharing. And now it's it's packaged into this film. Our, our life in this period of time has really been whittled down to the key moments in sequence and and, in chronology. And now it just feels right for us to kind of shepherd the film into the world. And at some point we will, you know, step back. But I think for now it really feels honest to the entire process.
1: Hmm. So I might be wrong about this, but I mean, the movie builds to the performance of the American Symphony. Can people buy that, stream it, find it somewhere?
2: these are the top two questions of when we do the q as
1: okay i try to ask some questions that nobody's asked when i do this show but i sometimes i have to ask the question that everybody's asked i guess
2: no 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 you've succeeded in that and this oh, thank question you. is also I'm very pleased. <laughs> you, you this has been very delightful but but uh yes it, it's not available now the symphony is not available but it will be it will come out and be shared in its entirety that's something that you know, In braiding together all these narratives that Matt and the team, Lauren Domino, all the the incredible producers and editors so masterfully did, one of the things that was really a question for them and ultimately for me, with my original intent being to share the symphony, is how do we get the full symphonic performance and story of this symphony that was composed with all these musicians hand-selected, one-of-one musicians to reinvent what a symphony is, where you have musicians from all walks of life to represent this musical allegory for the American experience. And and we've been talking about releasing part two, which is really just the concert in its entirety, where you can hear the piece from beginning to end. And you also get a sense of the backstory of This piece and how it has come together in the lineage of composition, the lineage of classical music and the lineage of American music and culture. But we have the footage, but the audio will definitely be released in its entirety. But I think the part two that we're discussing, which we'd like to do and who knows if it'll happen, but we really want to use that footage with the audio that will be released.
1: Okay, that'd be something to watch out for. I have a feeling somebody will say yes to that. Maybe his name is Ted Sarandos, maybe something else.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Ted, man, he's great. You know, I mean, he's doing a lot of content. I don't see why that one doesn't fit.
1: Yeah, neither do I. Maybe I'll ask him next time I see him. (laughs) Hey, nah. Well, congratulations. It's an amazing film. It's definitely going to get a lot of attention, more than it's even already gotten. So I'm glad you're not hating the awards circuit yet.
2: (laughs) Well, that's the thing about being with Sulika and us being together in this awards circuit. It feels great that she's well enough and doing so well right now to yeah. do this and to share our story and to be there to kind of move it into the world and to bring greater awareness to it. So hopefully it continue to help people and move people out there. And that's, that's it. You know, one day it may not feel like that. Maybe we will just let it be the public's for all time. But until then, we're sharing it. And hopefully, you know, it, it will continue to really bring people some insight into this thing called life.
1: Well, thank you so much for talking to us about the film. I really appreciate it.
2: Oh, wow. Thank you so much. This has (laughs) been great.
1: Woo! And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from John Meek and Nick Lamponi, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on KCRW.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week.